the physical and spiritual world are each the creation of God. In the physical world, the water is sovereignly changed into wine, and the lepers are healed by a touch. The Arminian readily admits God's miraculous power in the physical world. Why then does he deny it in the spiritual world, as if the spirits of men were beyond his control? We believe that God can change a bad man into a good man when he pleases. That is one form of authority which is the right of the Creator to exercise over the creature. It is one of the means by which the world is governed, and when God sees that it is best for the welfare of the individual and for the development of his kingdom to thus work, it is not only permissible but right that he should do so. The effect follows immediately upon the volition as when he said, Let there be light. The divine saving act, says Mosley, is the bestowal of this irresistible grace. The subject of the divine predetermination is rescued by an act of absolute power from the dominion of sin, dragged from it, as it were, by force, converted, filled with the love of God and his neighbor, and qualified infallibly for a state of ultimate reward. As the physical eye once blinded cannot be restored to sight by any amount of intensity of light falling upon it, so the soul dead in sin cannot acquire spiritual vision by any amount of gospel truth presented to it. Unless the surgeon's knife or a miracle restore the eye to its normal condition, sight is impossible. And unless the soul be set right through regeneration, it will never comprehend and accept the gospel truth. In regeneration, God bids the sinner live, and immediately he is alive, filled with a new spiritual life. Lydia, the seller of purple in the city of Thyatira, gave heed to the things which were spoken by Paul, because the Lord had first opened her heart. Acts 16.14 Christ taught the same truth when in his intercessory prayer he said concerning himself that God gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom thou hast given him, he should give eternal life. John 17.2 And again, For as the Father raises the dead, and giveth them life, even so the Son also giveth life to whom he will. John 5.21 Under the covenant made with Adam, man's destiny depended on his own works. We know the results of that trial. Now if man could not work out his own salvation, when he is upright, what chance has he to do so since he is fallen? Happy for us, God has this time taken the matter into his own hand. And if God again gave me a free will by which to work out his own salvation, what would he be doing but again instituting the dispensation which he had already been tried and which ended in failure? Suppose a man is carried away by a torrent which he is unable to master. Would it be reasonable or wise to take him out only to recruit his strength for a second trial? Would it not be a mockery to save him only to repeat the process? Since God does not repeat his dispensations, it follows that the second time he would order salvation on a different plan. If further works are to be wrought, then God, and not man, will be the author and the new dispensation, like the old, is adjusted to the state in which it finds man. We are very sure that no property does 
or kin attached to the will of man, whether fallen or unfallen, that can take it beyond the reach of God's sovereign control. Saul was called at the height of his persecuting zeal and was transformed into the saintly Paul. The poor dying thief on the cross was called in the last hour of his earthly life. When Paul preached at Antioch, as many as were ordained to eternal life, and only they, believed. Acts 13.48 If God purposed that all men should be saved, he most certainly would bring all to salvation. But for reasons which have been only partly revealed, he leaves many impenitent. Through all of his works, however, God does nothing which is inconsistent with man's nature as a rational and responsible being. One of the great shortcomings of Arminianism has been its failure to recognize the necessity for the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit on the heart. Instead, it has resolved regeneration into a more or less gradual change which is carried out by the individual person in their change of purpose in the sinner's mind, which is a result of moral persuasion in the general force of truth. It has insisted upon free will, the power of contrary choice, etc., and has taught that ultimately the sinner determines his own destiny. In its more consistent forms, it makes man a co-savior with Savior, as if the glory and redemption was to be divided between the grace of Christ and the will of man, the latter dividing the spoils with the former. If, as Arminians say, God is earnestly trying to convert every person, he is making a great failure of his work. For among the adult population of the world up to the present time, where he has succeeded in saving one, he has let perhaps twenty-five fall into hell. Such a view sheds little glory on the divine majesty. Concerning the Arminian doctrine of resistible grace, Toplady says that it is a doctrine which represents omnipotence itself as wishing and trying and striving to no purpose. According to this tenet, God in endeavoring, for it seems that it is only an endeavor, to convert sinners, may by sinners be foiled, defeated, and disappointed. He may lay close and long siege to the soul, and that soul can, from the citadel of impregnable free will, hang out a flag of defiance to God himself, and by a continued obstinacy of defiance, in a few vigorous sallies of free will, compel him to raise the siege. In a word, the Holy Spirit, after having for years perhaps danced attendance on the free will of man, may at length, like a discomfited general or an unsuccessful politician, be either put to ignominious flight or contemptuously dismissed, re-infecta, without accomplishing the end for which he was sent. It is unreasonable to suppose that the sinner can thus defeat the creative power of Almighty God. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, said the risen Lord. No limit is set to that authority. Is anything too hard for Jehovah? He doeth according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand, or say unto him, What doest thou? In view of these passages and many others to the same effect, it ill becomes us to imagine that God is struggling along with man as best he can, persuading, exhorting, pleading, but unable to accomplish his purpose if his creatures will otherwise. 
If God does not effectually call, we may imagine him saying, I will that all men should be saved. Nevertheless, it must finally be, not as I will, but as they will. He is then put into the same extremity with Darius, who would gladly have saved Daniel, but could not. Daniel 6.14 No Christian who is familiar with what the scriptures teach about the sovereignty of God can believe that he is thus defeated in his creatures. Is it not necessary that the creature must have power to defy and thwart the purposes of Almighty God before his actions can be rewarded or punished? Furthermore, if God actually stood powerless before the majesty of man's lordly will, there would be but little use to pray for him to convert anyone. It would then be more reasonable for us to direct our petitions to the man himself. 4. The Effect Produced in the Soul The immediate and important effect of this inward purifying change of nature is that the person loves righteousness and trusts in Christ for salvation. Whereas his natural element was sin, it now becomes holiness. Sin becomes repulsive to him, and he loves to do good. This effective and irresistible grace converts the will itself and forms a holy character in the person by a creative act. It removes a man's appetite for sinful things, so that he refrains from sin, not as the dyspeptic refuses to eat the dainties for which he longs, lest his indulgence should be punished with the agonies of sickness, but rather because he hates sin for its own sake. The holy and thorough submission to God's will, which the convert before dreaded and resisted, he now loves and approves. Obedience has become not only the obligatory, but the preferable good. But so long as people remain in this world, they are subject to temptations, and they will still have the remnants of the old nature clinging to them. Hence they are often deluded and commit sin. Yet these sins are only the death struggles and frenzied writhings of the old nature, which has already received the death blow. The regenerate also suffer pain, disease, discouragement, and even death itself, although they are steadily advancing toward complete salvation. At this point, many people confuse regeneration and sanctification. Regeneration is exclusively God's work, and it is an act of His free grace in which He implants a new principle of spiritual life in the soul. It is performed by supernatural power and is complete in an instant. On the other hand, sanctification is a process through which the remains of sin in the outward life are gradually removed, so that, as the Shorter Catechism says, we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. It is a joint work of God and man. It consists in the gradual triumph of the new nature implanted in regeneration over the evil that still remains after the heart has been renewed. Or, in other words, we may say that complete sanctification lags behind after the life has been, in principle, one to God. Perfect righteousness is the goal which is set before us all through this life, and every Christian should make steady progress toward that goal. Sanctification, however, is not fully completed until death, at which time the Holy Spirit cleanses the soul of every vestige of sin, making it holy and raising it above even the possibility of sinning. 
Strictly speaking, we may say that redemption is not fully complete until the saved have received the resurrection bodies. In one sense, it was complete when Christ died on Calvary, yet it is applied only gradually by the Holy Spirit. And since the Holy Spirit does thus effectually apply to the elect the merits of Christ's sacrifice, their salvation is most infallibly certain and can by no means be prevented. Hence the certainty that the will of God for the salvation of his people is in no wise disappointed or made void by his creatures. 5. The Sufficiency of Christ's Work Evangelism We now come to discuss the sufficiency of Christ's work in the matter of redemption. We believe that by his vicarious suffering and death he fully paid the debt which his people owe to divine justice, thus releasing them from the consequences of sin, and that by keeping the law of perfect obedience and living a sinless life, he vicariously earned for them the reward of eternal life. His work fully provided for their rescue from sin and for their establishment in heaven. These two phases of his work are sometimes referred to as his active and passive obedience. This doctrine of the sufficiency of his work is set forth in the Westminster Confession when we are told that by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself he fully satisfied the justice of his Father and purchased not only reconciliation but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father had given him. Had he only paid the penalty for sin without also earning the reward of eternal life his people would then only have been raised up to the zero point. They would then have been on the same plane as was Adam before he fell and would still have been under obligation to earn eternal life for themselves. To Paul's declaration that Christ is all in all in matters of salvation, Colossians 3.11, we can add that man is nothing at all as to that work and has not in himself anything which merits salvation. We should remember that the gospel is not good advice, but good news. It does not tell us what we are to do to earn salvation, but proclaims to us what Christ has done to save us. To doubt that any for whom Christ died will be saved, or that righteousness will eventually triumph, is to doubt the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for the work which he undertook on our behalf. On the cross Jesus declared that he had finished the work of redemption which the Father gave him to do. But as Top Lady remarks, that person with power to accept or reject as he pleases must say, No, thou didst not finish the work of redemption which was given thee to do, thou didst indeed a part of it, but I myself must add something to it or the whole of thy performance will stand for naught. Only those views which ascribe to God all the power in the salvation of sinners are consequently evangelical. For the word evangelical means that it is God alone who saves. If faith and obedience must be added depending upon the independent choice of man, we no longer have evangelicalism. Evangelicalism with a universal atonement leads to universal salvation, 
and in so far as Arminianism holds that Christ died for all men and that the Spirit strives to apply this redemption to all men but that only some are saved it is not evangelical we may further illustrate this principle of evangelicalism by supposing a group of people who are stricken with a fatal disease then if a doctor administers to them a medicine which is a certain cure all who get the medicine will recover. In the same manner, if the work of Christ is effective, and if it is applied to all men by the Spirit, all will be saved. Hence, to become evangelical, the Arminian must become a universalist. Calvinism alone, which holds to evangelicalism with a limited atonement and asserts that the work of Christ accomplishes what it was intended to accomplish, is consistent with the facts of scripture and experience. 6. The Arminian View of Universal Grace The universalistic note is always prominent in the Arminian system. A typical example of this is seen in the assertion of Professor Henry C. Sheldon, who for a number of years was connected with Boston University. Says he, Our contention is for the universality of the opportunity of salvation as against an exclusive and unconditional choice of individuals to eternal life. Here we notice not only one, the characteristic Arminian stress on universalism, but also two, the recognition that, in the final analysis, all that God does for the salvation of men does not actually save anybody, but that it only opens up a way of salvation so that men can save themselves and then for all practical purposes we are back on the plane of pure naturalism. Perhaps the strongest assertion of the Arminian construction is to be found in the creed of the Evangelical Union Body, or so-called Morrisonians, the very purpose of which was to protect against unconditional election. A summary of its three universalities is found in the creed thus, the love of God the Father in the gift and sacrifice of Jesus to all men everywhere without distinction, exception, or respect of persons, the love of God the Son in the gift and sacrifice of himself as a true propitiation for the sins of the whole world, the love of God the Holy Spirit in his personal and continuous work of applying to the souls of all men the provisions of divine grace. Certainly, if God loves all men alike, and if Christ dies for all men alike, and the Holy Spirit applies the benefits of that redemption to all men alike, one of two conclusions follows. 1. All men alike are saved, which is contradicted by Scripture. Or 2. All that God does for man does not save him, but leaves him to save himself. What then becomes of our evangelicalism, which means that it is God alone who saves sinners? If we assert that after God has done all his work, it is still left for man to accept or not resist, we give man veto power over the work of Almighty God, and salvation rests ultimately in the hand of man. In this system, no matter how great a portion of the work of salvation God may do, man is ultimately the deciding factor. And the man who does come to salvation has some personal merit of his own, he has some grounds to boast over those who are lost. He can point a finger of scorn and say, You had as good chance as I had. I accepted and you rejected the offer. 
Therefore, you deserve to suffer. How different is this from Paul's declaration that it is not of works that no man should glory, and he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Ephesians 2.9, 1 Corinthians 1.31 The tendency in all these universalistic systems in which man proudly seizes the helm and proclaims himself the master of his destiny is to reduce Christianity to a religion of works. Luther had this very point in mind when he satirically remarked concerning the moralists of his day, Here we are always wanting to turn the tables and do good of ourselves to that poor man, our Lord God, from whom we are rather to receive it. Zanchius says that Arminianism gently whispers in the ear of man that even in his fallen state he has both the will and the power to do what is good and acceptable to God that Christ's death is accepted by God as a universal atonement for all men, in order that every one may, if he will, save himself by his own free will and good works, that in the exercise of our natural powers we may arrive at perfection, even in the present state of life. The issue, says Dr. Warfield, is indeed a fundamental one and is clearly drawn. Is it God the Lord who saves us, or is it we ourselves? And does God the Lord save us, or does he merely open up the way of salvation and leave it according to our choice to walk in it or not? The parting of the ways is the old parting of the ways between Christianity and autosotorism. Certainly only he can claim to be evangelical who with full consciousness rests entirely and directly on God and God alone for his salvation. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's commands. Could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow. All for sin could not atone, thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked came to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. 7. No violation of man's free agency. It is a common thing for opponents to represent this doctrine as implying that men are forced to believe and turn to God against their wills, or that it reduces men to the level of machines in the matter of salvation. This is a misrepresentation. Calvinists hold no such opinion, and in fact the full statement of the doctrine excludes or contradicts it. The Westminster Confession, after stating that this affectious grace which results in conversion is an exercise of omnipotence and cannot be defeated, adds, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. The power by which the work of regeneration is effected is not of an outward and compelling nature. Regeneration does no more violence to the soul than demonstration does to the intellect or persuasion the heart. Man is not dealt with as if he were a stone or a log. Neither is he treated as a slave and driven against his own will to seek salvation. Rather, the mind is illuminated and the entire range of conceptions with regard to God, self, and sin is changed. 
God sends his Spirit in in a way which shall forever respond to the praise of his mercy and grace, sweetly constrains the person to yield. The regenerated man finds himself governed by new motives and desires, and things which were once hated are now loved and sought after. This change is not accomplished through any external compulsion, but through a new principle of life which has been created within the soul and which seeks after the food which alone can satisfy it. The spiritual law, like the civil law, is not a terror to the good work, but to the evil, and we find a good analogy for this in human affairs. Compare the law-abiding citizen and the criminal. The law-abiding citizen goes about his affairs day after day, unconscious of most of the laws of the state and nation in which he lives. He looks to the government officials and to the police as his friends. They represent constituted authority, which he respects and in which he delights. He is a free man. For him the law exists only as a protector of his life, his loved ones, and his property. But when we look at the criminal, the whole picture is changed. He probably knows more about the statutes than does the law-abiding man. He studies them in order that he may evade them and defeat their purpose. He lives in fear. He defends his secret room with bulletproof doors and carries a revolver for fear of what the police or other people may do to him. He is under a constant bondage. His idea of liberty is to eliminate the police, corrupt the courts, and bring into general disrepute the laws and customs of society on which he tries to pray. All of us have had experiences in our everyday lives in which we refuse to do certain things, but upon the introduction of new factors we have changed our minds and have freely and gladly done what we before opposed. Certainly there is nothing in this doctrine to warrant the representation that upon Calvinistic principles men are forced to repent and believe whether or not they choose to do so. But some may ask, do not the many passages in the Bible which as, If thou shalt obey, if thou shalt turn unto Jehovah, if thou do that which is evil, and so forth, at least imply that man has free will and ability? It does not follow, however, that merely because God commands, man is able to obey. Oftentimes parents play with their children in telling them to do this or that when their very purpose is to show them their inability and to induce them to ask for the parents' help. When men of the world hear such language, they assume that they have sufficient power in themselves, and, like the self-conceited lawyer to whom Jesus said, This do, and thou shalt live, they go away believing that they are able to earn salvation by good works. But when the truly spiritual man hears such language, he is led to see that he cannot fulfill the commandment, and so cries out to the Father to do the work for him. In these passages, man is taught not what he can do, but what he ought to do. And woe to the one who is so blind that he cannot see this truth, for until he does see it, he can never adequately appreciate the work of Christ. In answer to the despairing sinner's cry, the scriptures reveal a salvation which is all of grace, the free gift of God's love and mercy in Christ. And the one who sees himself thus saved by grace 
instinctively cries out with David, Who am I, O Lord Jehovah, and what is my house that thou hast brought me thus far? The special grace which we refer to as efficacious is sometimes called irresistible grace. This latter term, however, is somewhat misleading since it does suggest that a certain overwhelming power is exerted upon the person, in consequence of which he is compelled to act contrary to his desires, whereas the meaning intended, as we have stated before, is that the elect are so influenced by divine power that their coming is an act of voluntary choice. 8. Common Grace Apart from the special grace which issues in the salvation of its objects, there is what we may call common grace or general influences of the Holy Spirit, which, to the greater or lesser degree, are shared by all men. God causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain upon the just and the unjust. He sends fruitful seasons and gives many things which make for the general happiness of mankind. Among the most common blessings which are to be traced to this source we may name health, material prosperity, general intelligence, talents of art, music, oratory, literature, architecture, commerce, inventions, etc. In many instances the non-elect receive these blessings in greater abundance than do the elect for we often find that the sons of this world are for their own generation wider than the sons of light. Common grace is the source of all the order, refinement, culture, common virtue, etc., which we find in the world, and through it the moral power of the truth upon the heart and conscience is increased, and the evil passions of men are restrained. It does not lead to salvation, but it keeps this earth from becoming a hell. It arrests the complete effectuation of sin, just as human insight arrests the fury of wild beasts. It prevents sin from being manifested in all its hideousness and thus hinders the bursting forth of the flames from the smoking fire. Like the pressure of the atmosphere, it is universal and powerful, though unfelt. Common grace, however, does not kill the core of sin, and therefore it is not capable of producing a genuine conversion. Through the light of nature, the workings of conscience, and especially through the external presentation of the gospel, it makes known to man what he should do, but does not give that power which man stands in need of. Furthermore, all of these common influences of the Holy Spirit are capable of being resisted. The scriptures constantly teach that the gospel becomes effectual only when it is attended by the special illuminating power of the Spirit, and that without this power it is to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. Hence the unregenerate man can never know God except in an outward way, and for this reason the external righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is declared to be just no righteousness at all. Jesus said to his disciples that the world could not receive the Spirit of truth, for it beholdeth him not, neither knoweth him. Yet in the same breath he added, Ye know him, for he abideth with you, and shall be in you. John 14.17 The Arminian doctrine destroys the distinction between efficacious and common grace.
or at best makes efficacious grace to be an assistance without which salvation is impossible, while the Calvinistic doctrine makes it to be an assistance by which salvation is made certain. Concerning the reformations which are produced by common grace, Dr. Charles Hodge says, It not infrequently happens that men who have been immoral in their lives change their whole course of living. They become outwardly correct in their deportment, temperate, pure, honest, and benevolent. This is a great and praiseworthy change. It is in a high degree beneficial to the subject of it and to all with whom he is connected. It may be produced by different causes, by the force of conscience or by a regard for the authority of God and a dread of his disapprobation, or by a regard to the good opinion of men, or by the mere force of enlightened regard to one's own interest. But whatever may be the proximate cause of such reformation, it falls very far short of sanctification. The two things differ in nature as much as a clean heart from clean clothes. Such external reformation may leave a man's inward character in the sight of God unchanged. He may remain destitute of love of God, of faith in Christ, and of all holy exercises or affections. And, says Dr. Hewitt, can the corpse in the graveyard be aroused by the sweetest music that ever has been invented, or by the loudest thunder which seems to shake the poles? Just as soon shall the sinner dead in trespasses and sins be moved by the thunder of the law or by the melody of the gospel. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Jeremiah 13.23 The following paragraph by Dr. S. G. Craig very clearly sets forth the limitations of common grace. Christianity realizes that education and culture that leaves Jesus Christ out of consideration while they may make men clever, polished, brilliant, have no power to change their characters. At the most, these things of themselves only cleanse the outside of the cup. They do not affect the nature of its contents. Those who place their confidence in education, culture, and such like assume that all that is needed to change the wild olive tree into a good olive tree is pruning, spraying, cultivation, and such like, whereas what the tree needs first of all is that it be grafted with a scion from a good olive tree. And until this is done, all labor that is spent on the tree is for the most part wasted. We do not underestimate the value of education and culture, and yet one might as well suppose that he could purify the waters of a river by improving the scenery along the banks, as suppose that these things of themselves are capable of transforming the hearts of the children of men. As an old Jewish proverb has it, take the bitter tree and plant it in the Garden of Eden, and water it with the waters there, and let the angel Gabriel be the gardener, and the tree will still bear bitter fruit. Chapter 14, page 182 The Perseverance of the Saints 1. Statement of the Doctrine 2. 
Perseverance does not depend upon the person's good works, but upon God's grace. 3. Though truly saved, the Christian may temporarily backslide and commit sin. 4. An outward profession of righteousness, not a guarantee that the person is a true Christian. 5. Arminian sense of insecurity. 6. Purpose of the scripture warnings against apostasy. 7. Scripture proof. 1. Statement of the Doctrine. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is stated in the Westminster Confession in the following words. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end, and be eternally saved. Or, in other words, we believe that those who once become true Christians cannot totally fall away and be lost, that while they may fall into sin temporarily, they will eventually return and be saved. This doctrine does not stand alone, but is a necessary part of the Calvinistic system of theology. The doctrines of election and efficacious grace logically imply the certain salvation of those who receive these blessings. If God has chosen men absolutely and unconditionally to eternal life, and if His Spirit effectively applies to them the benefits of redemption, the inescapable conclusion is that these persons shall be saved. And historically, this doctrine has been held by all Calvinists and denied by practically all Arminians. Those who have fled to Jesus for refuge have a firm foundation upon which to build. Though floods of error deluge the land, though Satan raise all the powers of earth and all the iniquities of their own hearts against them, they shall never fail. But persevering to the end, they shall inherit those mansions which have been prepared for them from the foundation of the world. The saints in heaven are happier, but no more secure than the true believers here in this world. Since faith and repentance are gifts of God, the bestowing of these gifts is a revelation of God's purpose to save those to whom they are given. It is an evidence that God has predestined the recipients of these gifts to be conformed to the image of His Son, that is, to be like Him in character, destiny, and glory, and that He will infallibly carry out His purpose. No one can pluck them out of His hands. Those who once become true Christians have within themselves the principle of eternal life, which principle is the Holy Spirit, and since the Holy Spirit dwells within them, they are already potentially holy. True, they are still exercised by many trials, and they do not yet see what they shall be, but they should know that that which is begun in them shall be completed to the end, and that the very presence of strife within them is the sign of life and the promise of victory. In regard to those who become true Christians, but who, as the Arminians allege, fall away, why does God not take them out of the world while they are in the saved state? 
Surely no one will say that it is because he cannot, or that it is because he does not foresee their future apostasy. Why then does he leave these objects of his affection here to fall back into sin and perish? His gift of continued life to these Christians amounts to an infinite curse placed upon them. But who can really believe that the Heavenly Father takes no better care of his children than that? This mistaken doctrine of the Arminians teach that a person may be a son of God today and a son of the devil tomorrow, that he may change from one state to another as rapidly as he changes his mind. It teaches that he may be born of the Spirit, justified, sanctified, all but glorified, and that even then he may become reprobate and perish eternally, his own will and course of conduct being the determining factor. Certainly the sovereign, loving God would not permit his ransomed children to thus fall away and perish. In addition to this, if God knows that a certain Christian is going to rebel and perish, can he love him with any deep affection even before his apostasy? If we knew that someone who is our friend today would be led to become our enemy and betray us tomorrow, we could not receive him with the intimacy and trust which otherwise would be natural. Our knowledge of his future acts would in large measure destroy our present love for him. No one denies that the redeemed in heaven will be preserved in holiness. Yet if God is able to preserve his saints in heaven without violating their free agency, may he not also preserve his saints on earth without violating their free agency? The nature of the change which occurs in regeneration is a sufficient guarantee that the life imparted shall be permanent. Regeneration is a radical and supernatural change of the inner nature through which the soul is made spiritually alive and the new life which is implanted is immortal. And since it is a change in the inner nature, it is in a sphere in which man does not control. No creature is at liberty to change the fundamental principles of its nature, for that is the prerogative of God the Creator. Hence nothing short of another supernatural act of God could reverse this change and cause the new life to be lost. The born-again Christian can no more lose his sonship to the Heavenly Father than an earthly son can lose his sonship to an earthly father. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B 
Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.